Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And that includes our brand new massive winter buyer's guide, which you can purchase and download the digital edition of the guide at blisterreview.com. And you can also order a print edition of the guide while supplies last. But as we like to say, the really smart move is to become a Blister member or a Blister Plus member. And that then includes a copy of the guide with your membership. So check that out. It's been really cool getting feedback about the guide from all around the world. And turns out, except for one particular comment, you know who you are. I left a long comment on the site about this. The response has been overwhelmingly positive, especially if you keep in mind that we don't include products that were discontinued three years ago. This is a buyer's guide that includes current products and products that we actually tested. Because another fun fact about what we do at Blister, we actually test products and then tell you about them. And if we haven't tested it, we don't. It's how the world should work. But it's not how the world always works, or maybe even often works. It's a big, crazy world out there, folks. So anyway, we're trying to bring a little bit more sanity to that craziness and chaos. Anyway, become a Blister member if you aren't already, and pick up the digital edition or the print copy of our Winter Buyer's Guide. Today, we've got a really interesting conversation for you. I'm speaking with Jürgen Jorgensen, who is the fourth generation owner, as well as the CEO of Norona. And while I would quickly like to offer my sincere apology for my Americanized pronunciation of Jürgen's name, as well as Norona's name, uh, sincere apologies to all Norwegians everywhere. But while my Norwegian pronunciation is poor, this conversation is outstanding. Norona is a company that started in 1929, and Jürgen does a great job of walking us through some of the really interesting parts of that rich history. And we also talk a lot about Norona's philosophy of product design. We discuss his take on current tests and standards which is something that we are thinking a lot about and exploring at Blister Labs. We also talk about the broader apparel industry, including Jürgen's thoughts on PFAS, this topic that we addressed on our last Gear 30 podcast. And I would encourage all of you to check out that extending conversation that Lou Kappa had with Alex Lover from Outdoor Research. And today, Jorgen will talk about Norona's own approach to PFAS and the evolution that we're seeing in the apparel industry. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by our list of blister recommended shops. This is our growing list of some of the best service centers in the ski and bike world. And they are some of the places we trust in very different locations around the world to work on our skis, 
to fit our ski boots and to wrench on our bikes. So we will include a link to our blister recommended shops list in the show notes of this episode. And we hope that you will support these shops as they are a number of places that try to do things with excellence and try to do things the right way. And now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Jorgen Jorgensen. Here we go. Well, Jorgen, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, Jonathan, I'm um, great. And I am in Oslo and uh, here the fall is really starting to set in. So we kind of feel the chill and maybe some snow in the mountains soon. So um, things are good. We have a lot of ground to cover today, in part because this company of yours started in 1929. And I really do want to talk a bit about this lengthy history. And so we're just diving in. Um, please tell us a bit about the origin story of the brand, and then we'll move into kind of the, the history and evolution of the brand. Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, what's important to know is that Norena's vision is welcome to nature. And that means that we want our users to have a fantastic experience out enjoying nature. And uh, all of these are built on four pillars, quality, function, design, and sustainability. And through the history of Norena, uh, all of these four building blocks has its natural place. Um, Norena uh, was established by my great-grandfather, uh, his name was also Jürgen Jürgensen. He was a saddle maker. Um, I mean, that was not the perfect uh, education eventually in the early 1900s. Um, but he actually started another outdoor company with a friend in 1918. Uh, it was called Polar, and they became quite successful. But they made called mediocre quality. And my great-grandfather, he was really a passionate craftsman. And in 1929, he pulled out of this company and established Norena with the ambition of making the highest quality outdoor products. Um, and so that is the first building block of uh, our company. And uh, it was uh, the brand was established 29th of April, 1929. Uh, Norena, the name, uh, it's uh, uh, the name, the slang name of a language spoken in the Viking Edge. And you can see the Viking as part of the logo. Um, this was just after Norway was liberated from Sweden. And the last time Norway did anything impressive was back in the Viking Edge. So uh, it was a natural sort of inspiration uh, starting a company in 1929. Uh, so the company started making uh, leather articles like gaiters, backpacks, eventually tents, and eventually clothing. Uh, it was a small company with uh, other people from the family also involved and uh, a few sowers. It was established in the center of Oslo, uh, very close to our first uh, flagship store uh, there. Well done. That was a very succinct, nearly 100 years of history right there. A harder question for you. 
How much do you know about, I mean, today we talk about the outdoor industry. What do you know about what that looked like in the 1920s and 1930s? Um, I mean, uh, the, the tradition of using uh, the outdoors has uh, been an important part of Norwegian lifestyle uh, forever. Uh, you know, even if you are in the urban cities, we are always exposed to, to a lot of nature. Uh, and it's always very close. So even here in Oslo, where, where I'm located now, um, you know, it will take me like 15 minutes to get to the center of Oslo if I go out, uh, if I leave here now. If I look out the window, I have a, you know, 30, 40 feet waterfall with salmon outside here. It looks like I'm in the middle of nature. So even back then, um, you were always searching for great outdoor gear. And I think that's part, uh, so I'll go a little more into the story of Norena. But part of the natural uh, development is that no matter what you do uh, in Norway, you sort of get exposed to nature and you very easily get to uh, places where uh, nature can be quite harsh and you have seasons and uh, rough winter times. And so, so, you know, to be comfortable, it's natural to invest in, uh, in uh, serious outdoor clothing. And, uh, you know, in some parts of Norway, um, instead of uh, kind of kids wanting luxury uh, brands, you know, it's more natural to look at outdoor brands because, mm-hmm. you know, it's both style and, and it keeps you nice and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during, you know, if we go back to the history, during sort of the, uh, the 30s, uh, there was a there was a niche of people wanting to buy quality outdoor gear then uh, already at that time. So after the company was established, uh, it kind of built stone on stone, adding more outdoor products uh, to the collection. Um, and eventually, you know, we came to 1940 when you had the war, and during the war, uh, we kind of survived on doing repairs because you couldn't get a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, materials and and repairs has actually been an important part of Nurena's uh, service already from the start. So so the natural thing is when you invest in quality product, uh, the, the repairs and service parts is the natural part of it. And and a small uh, kind of uh, funny uh, story, you know, last year we actually did. Uh, competition where we wanted to find the oldest the Nurena products in use. Uh, and the winner was from the 1930s, the product. Yeah. And it was actually a guy in Miami that uses uh, used that backpack to go to the gym every day. He picked it up on eBay somewhere. Um, so that's a little, uh, you know, natural why you repairs. It's just sort of an integrated part of, of everything uh, that we've done from the start. Hmm. Um, during the 50s and 60s, um, uh, my grandfather uh, came into the company and, and took over. And he kind of widened um, uh, this assortment. So eventually, we did uh, more camping gear uh, and kind of also uh, a little more um, kind of for outdoor products for everyone. Um, and the company grew, and uh, suddenly in um, 1971, 
uh, he died. And uh, my father, he was kind of left uh, with the responsibility of the company. Um, he didn't ha didn't really have a high education. And at that time, he was not really into outdoor. But when he uh, was in this situation, he decided and he took a kind of life-changing decision that he really wanted to kind of develop Norona further. Uh, so he bought off uh, his aunts and his sister, and he sold off the camping gear and what was not core outdoor. Hmm. Um, and he started the next phase of Norona, which is great functionality. So one day in 1972, um, Swede called Thomas Karlström. He came into my father's office. Thomas Karlström moved to Norway because he wanted to be close to the mountains, and he was an engineer. Um, and together, they kind of started what we call extreme user product development. It means if the most demanding users are happy with the product, everyone else should be. This was not done strategically, but more as a coincidence, because during the 70s, a lot of expeditions started to kind of happen in Norway and also all over the world. And Norena was a part of this mountaineering and outdoor community. So people uh, that wanted to go on expedition, they came to us and they said, you know, we need this kind of backpack or we need this kind of jacket or we need this kind of tent. Can you make it? And then we developed that product. They tested it on an expedition. We took the learnings in, adjusted, and when we were happy, we put the products to the market. So uh, during the 70s, we came out with a, a number of really innovative, high-end outdoor products. Some uh, examples uh, is uh, like a cotton anorak that we made in 1975. Uh, and the innovation was, you know, before people, uh, the, the fabric was naturally polyester cotton because you wanted it windproof. Um, and that was the natural uh, materials to choose. What happened then is that they were breathing not very well. So my father created a very tight woven, a 300 grams uh, cotton, which had a high wind resistance, good durability, and was breathing very well. Twice the price on uh, the existing kind of cotton uh, or, or polyester cotton jackets, huh. but it was much better in functionality. Uh, this was kind of typical product development that happened during the 70s. Also, what uh, something unique that we did was uh, in 1972, we started using kind of the destination names or mountain names to name our products. And as far as I know, this is the first time uh, that uh, has happened, as far as I can see. So, you know, Norena has always been good at using Norwegian names to our collections and products. And this started back in 1972 where we had the photo shoot uh, with a tent that called Ravneskar in front of the Ra Ravneskar mountain. Of course, a lot of people do it now. Mm. Another cool uh, story um, is uh, from 1977, when Thomas Karlström had um, some visitors from US. I think his name is Chris Barber, a famous climber that was sponsored by Gore-Tex, which was a new innovative material. So Thomas uh, saw Chris's uh, jacket and tried it on. And, uh, you know, you could see this uh, 
kind of fantastic material that was both waterproof and breathable. He tested it on under his backpack straps. It was wet, but on uh, the rest of it, he was dry. So he was like, oh, this is a game changer. So he called my father. My father called Gore-Tex. And we got 20 meters of Gore-Tex uh, and, and made the first three Gore-Tex jacket in Europe in 1977. Um, and... This story continues because we realized that this material is a fantastic way to create uh, weather protection for big wall climbing. So in 1979, we had developed a um, climbing jacket and a climbing bib uh, with high pockets and you know everything that you need for big wall climbing. And the first winter ascent of something called Trollvägen, it's the troll wall in Norway, it's a thousand meter vertical wall uh, was um, climbed by uh, uh, two of our ambassadors using the Trollvägen Gore-Tex uh, jacket and pants. And then we tested it on one more expedition and in 1980 we put it to the market. And Trollvägen is still a jacket that we continue to redevelop uh, today. So this is a very good example of our extreme user product development. During the 80s Kind of, we continued to add on uh, kind of more product types. We started with some first wool skiing products for Tailormark in the right 1985. We added on some kind of hunting products in Gore-Tex, um, and the company slowly, slowly kind of grew. Um, and in 1990, the turnover of Norena was 1.2 million dollars, um, and at this time, some uh, critical things happened in uh, both uh, Norway's outdoor history and uh, Norena's uh, history. Uh, all the way until the 90s, we manufactured everything in Norway. Uh, but during uh, these years, few, fewer and fewer people wanted to you know, be sowers in Norway. So I still remember when I was a kid, my father... I drove with my father around uh, the Oslo area, one hour outside, finding small sewing houses with four people that kind of uh, worked for a month and sent the products back. He was so afraid of kind of sourcing out the production, but still he started looking at it. Uh, so eventually in 93, we ended up in Estonia. And my father was so surprised when he saw the products coming back because they had a much higher quality than when we made it in Norway. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. But, but with sort of sourcing out the production, we kind of got a lot of uh, production capacity. Uh, Norway got the Winter Olympics in 1994. And as part of this, there was sort of a huge outdoor wave happening uh, in Norway. Kind of. Uh, so it's like a new wave of everyone wanted to be in the outdoors. And Nurena was very well positioned with kind of high quality, timeless, very functional product. And we had uh, the manufacturing capacity. So during the 90s, we kind of grew from 1.2 million to 10 million. Uh, so it was a pretty good growth to be in, uh, in Norway. Um, and we still kind of used uh, expeditions to develop a lot of the products and also to creating uh, the, the image, uh, image of the brand. Some of the kind of 
most important um, expedition, uh, and which I will have a lot of feelings for, is a Norwegian Trangle uh, Tower expedition in '84, where they did the first ascent of the east wall in uh, uh, Trangle Tower, which is kind of probably the most difficult mountain to climb in the world. Uh, it's a thousand meter vertical wall, uh, ending up around six thousand eight hundred meters, um, and this expedition was a very low budget. And I'm, I mean, I remember I was 11 when these uh, four expedition members were coming to our house and uh, before they left for the expedition. And I mean, they used 25 days in the wall. Uh, they, they, no one had been there before, so they kind of had uh, no pictures. It was hard to plan. Uh, so two of them ended, ended up going up and reached the top. And they were sort of taken by an avalanche uh, going down and kind of they died. And that was the first time I kind of really uh, got, uh, you know, the consequence of being in the outdoors and seeing that. Uh, so this expedition is rated by Climbing Magazine as one of the 10 greatest climbing expeditions. And they all used Lorena gear and were Lorena ambassadors. But it's also meant a lot for both Lorena's history and the, our, our kind of Norwegian climbing history. We also had Arctic expedition histories and uh, expeditions and different kind of both uh, alpine and um, polar expeditions, sort of first skiing to the North Pole uh, and other things like that. Um, during um, during the um, uh, the nineties, um, in the middle of the nineties, my my father he kind of pulled out of the company uh, for for different reasons. He there was some tax regulation, local tax regulation that kind of did not favor being an owner and a leader. When he kind of pulled out, the company lost a little of the energy uh, to kind of moving forward. And towards the end of the 90s, we kind of think we, we, we became a little more defensive. At the same time, you have the kind of companies like Arterix coming in with uh, very innovative and, and cool products. Um, at that time, I was working in a Norwegian outdoor chain, and we're actually the first one in Norway to buy in Arterix products and, and sell them sell them out. And I saw, you know, that brand came in, uh, high price points without any brand awareness and sold quite well. Um, so uh, we saw that we needed to, to do something in Norena to get kind of uh, uh, more on the forefront again. Uh, I mean, at the age of uh, 27, I was uh, agreeing with my father to go into the company and working with the product development to get some sparks into it and, and think a little differently. So what we did at that time was adding some new ambassadors from the free ride. You know, the, the fatter skis were coming and the free ride was really having uh the early early days and we changed a little how we work with uh, our designers we let more people into the process and we kind of used the latest technology and and those ambassadors they sort of came with some really cool ideas that eventually became uh, the Lufoten collection which we launched in 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 2004 and the Lufoten uh, especially the Lufoten Gore-Tex jacket and pant you know when they came out they it was so innovative and very different looking from the rest of the market. It was kind of innovating on fit features, fabrics, colors. Um, and when we put it to, uh, the, you know, to the, um, to our sales team, they were kind of unsecure. 
you know, what is this? Uh, we got into some uh, retail stores and the consumers liked it. It sold really well. At the same time, um, we wanted the brand to be recognized as, or, or our vision is that, that we are the kind of greatest outdoor, um, to, that we make the greatest outdoor products. And if you want to be credible on that, you cannot only sell in Norway. You know, we have to uh, also be recognized internationally. So at the same time as we developed Lofoten, we started working on export, uh, then focusing on Central Europe. And the Freerider collection Lofoten were so different. So it was picked up by many core stores around Europe. And when it came into the stores, it sold really well. It had the bright colors. It differentiated very well from the sort of black and gray market that was uh, that was there. Uh, and uh, I think also when you have these great skiers picking it up uh, and you see the, them with the great colors and when they ski in the big uh, um, ski areas in the Alps, they get noticed by a lot of people every day. Uh, so, so the brand actually spread uh, quite well, even if it was kind of seen as a niche ski brand that started our uh, sort of export uh, development, which uh, now we're, uh, you know, most uh, more than 50% of our turnover is outside Norway. Norway is still a big market. But also during this Lofoten development, we developed our uh, design philosophy, which is loaded minimalism. So the sort of third building block, which is design, came in when we started this uh, development. And we use design in everything we do as a differentiator, both how the products look, but also colors and, and uh, you know, our design philosophy goes through everything. Uh, in uh, early 2004, um, the existing CEO and I started to, to crash a bit. Uh, I mean, I wanted to go out in the world and, and uh, be kind of aggressive and succeed as an international brand. And he was not, he said, you know, a small brand from Norway cannot succeed internationally. Uh, so, I had a lot of discussion with my father, and um, finally he agree agreed that I should take over the company first uh, of January two thousand and um, five. And um, in the meantime, uh, he uh, got sick, and just a month after I took over the company, he uh, died from cancer. So I was uh, thirty-one years old, uh, some experience, but still quite young. Luckily, I found um, an external chairman that uh, was used, you know, he'd run a family company himself and he's a straight shooter. So he came in and, and been a mentor ever since and really a straight shooter that, uh, here again, this is what you have to, uh, to do. But in um, 2005, we developed a strategy that we kind of are on today, uh, so kind of getting the brand to be bigger outside of Norway, getting the brand to not be the biggest, but uh, make the best products out there. Uh, we're not about quantity, we're about quality. And uh, the first year of uh, running uh, the company, export sales started growing and, and we got the sort of top line to grow back in. In 2007, I uh, experienced my toughest uh, time and the biggest learning as uh, running the company. I've been kind of driving things too fast uh, so an example here is we did a lot of the, um, uh, the testing on products on the sales samples so what happens here is like you know 
First, you have all the dealers, your uh, sales samples, you get the orders, and seven months later, you deliver them. Um, today, that those, those products that we, we um, uh, show the uh, retailers, they are 100% tested and everything is fine. At that time, we were, were so uh, eager to innovate, so we tested out new solutions. And then, you know, when those don't work and you have to fix everything before production, that's hard. At the same time, we were launching new Gore-Tex Pro and uh, there were some problems with that one. Uh, and we also moved more of our manufacturing to Asia. All of this ended up with 11 factories being massively too late. Some we had quality issues and I had a sort of responsibility as a supply chain director also at that time. I went out to Asia expecting production to be flowing in the end of June. Not one single product was made. Uh, and that was continued during the fall. Uh, we launched maybe the most innovative collection we ever did, but uh, the quality was not 100%. There was um, both from our side and from Gore-Tex. And taking this into kind of uh, uh, a learning, looking uh, into the mirror and realizing that I'm responsible for this and learning what I had to do to fix it. Because we very soon developed a very good process, both from a quality control and, and a process for when things should be done, which we will run on today. So during 2008, we fixed this and it learned, uh, it was a big learning for me about you never ever let a product to the market, which you are not 100% certain about the quality. Good learnings. Um, and we uh, kind of used a couple of years to really get the operations going, export sales back on growing. So um, Kind of by 2009, I turned the company around and getting a good yearly growth, uh, highly profitable. And now I thought the time is ready to uh, make the first Nuriana concept store. And in 2009, uh, at the tail of the financial crisis, we opened a 5,000 square meter uh, flagship store in the center of Oslo. And that was the first time we saw the whole Noriana collection in one place. Um, and uh, also with this store, we did a lot of innovation. We kind of had the repair center in there, only one of each size. So we had auto replenishment every day, never discounting, never sales, a lot of space for each product. So we really got to see the products well. But one thing we saw is that when you had the whole product line on the wall, I didn't think it was harmonizing enough. So the week after we opened the store, I got uh, my um, research and development manager in there and we looked at it and said, ah, we need to coordinate the colors so the whole collection look great together. So after this, we actually use our stores to make sure the harmony in the collection is there. So, you know, we have 13 different uh, collections. Um, they should sort of the ambition is that you can take any product from any collection and put them together, and they look good together. They are not about matching, but they should look together. And ideally, you can do that with a two-year-old product and a new Norena product too. It's a difficult ambition to do it, and I think we, you know, of course, we fail sometimes. But this is so it's easy to buy, uh, you know, products over time and still get the uniqueness in there. And this we used our products for. And I mean, I 
wonder, I mean, that sounds cool and interesting, but do you have any sense from an actual sale or customer satisfaction point of view that that is something that customers pick up on and notice and really appreciate? Because it almost seems a little, um, that's, that's pretty sort of almost theoretical or theoretically interesting, but I'm curious what you've learned about the brass tacks when it comes to sales, when it comes to retaining customers or customer satisfaction. Do you hear much on this side? Uh, I, I mean, uh, I know what we did with the first to the, you know, first retail store and then changing the colors and everything. I think uh, people that are into the Norana stores, they really see it today. We use a special light. Uh, the, the light that we use in the store is replicating daylight. Um, you know, before that, it was very yellow, so you don't really see the good colors. And But, you know, the eye naturally likes the rogbiff, you know, the same as the rainbow. So, uh, and, and the stores are organized by color. So, there's something, if you go in and it's harmony, it's just you get more calm inside. Uh, so you know we have a very organized and strict rules of how you or, uh, how you put this together, both from when we choose the color side, but also from how it looks in the store. And and we don't really look at trend colors. We we monitor them, but we take the colors we like ourselves. And very often we sort of recycle colors. Uh, so kind of they come back because we miss them and, and we see our customers doing the same. You know, we get a lot of feedback. You know, the red color that you had five years ago, you know, when can we get that back? And, or I, I have this jacket and I want the matching pants that disappeared two years ago. So therefore it's also, uh, you know, therefore, and because of it's a high quality product, the second hand market is, um, is very good for Norana products. That's a great history, by the way. And I know you're not totally done with this history yet, but I, I want to just come back to a couple of things that you talked about. And first, you mentioned the trials and tribulations around 2008, right, where there were manufacturing uh, pro mistakes and challenges. And you said something that maybe would not have sounded very, um, I don't know, uh, unconventional from where I sit. And that is you claimed that when there were these manufacturing um, difficulties and that you guys were like, like many companies continue to iterate on certain products, but then sent products out to the market that had not actually been fully tested. So you said now that doesn't happen at Nerona. We are testing the final iteration of a product before it goes out to market. That is not always the case. I Listeners should know, we can just say from experience, whether that is in the ski world, whether that is in the apparel world, because there are production timelines, because there are sales deadlines in, you know, in the like, that is, a would say, easier said than done. And I would just love to hear how you handle that from a brand point of view. If, in fact, we are to believe that you stick to this story, nothing goes out until that last and final iteration of the product has been tested. How do you handle all the logistics and complexities with shipping dates, 
and stores that put in orders and they need to have things by a certain deadline. It's it's complicated and I am curious. Yeah, I mean, it's I think a lot of the learnings from this 2007 uh, incident uh, was that we need to have a clear timeline on when things should be done. And uh, if we are not able to do that, we will postpone the product. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, the, the period in 2007, it was so painful to have um, products in the market that was not to our standards. And since that, we have quite a few times hold back, uh, cut back products that we are not happy with. And we have also, uh, with actually big losses, not put them to the market, even if we had order on them. But we are, we are quite good at following our uh, timeline. And, you know, the timeline, you say, how much time would you need for each activity? And then you go your way back and then you figure out when to start. So everyone has uh, sort of time to do their job. Um, and this we've trained on since 2008 here. We've been very good as a company to do it. Uh, so we run six timelines um, kind of uh, every every month. And uh, we use um, monthly manager meeting to kind of target where we are. But in the real world, things can still come up and happen. And so what you're saying is if a year from now there was a new product rollout and in fact, timelines got messed up on the manufacturing side, you would just hold that back and eat the short-term loss, but for the sake of not doing long-term potential damage to the brand, right? I mean, that's something that every brand probably has to face. And and I'm, I like the sound of what you're saying, which is always think about the long-term. And so we can't, we can't afford, or we don't want as a brand to have a less than dialed in product out there on the market where customers might get their hands on it and think, yeah, this, I don't know what happened to this brand. They used to be good, right? That's something we hear sometimes, right? That brand used to be good. Um, that feels like a bit of a death knell to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, we use approximately two years to develop a pro- normal products. And sometimes when there's sort of more innovation, we use three years. Um, and uh, you know, uh, when uh, we order a sales sample, the product should be as we want it. Um, and um, we will get in the sales sample and we will, of course, this is also a test production. So while the sales team is selling in the product, we do um, kind of a short-term test on it. So we get all our ambassadors to test the products and uh, we test it in the lab and we see, you know, is it like it should be. Is there anything here that's not uh, how we want them? And if we see some things, and of course we see small things there, then the RDN team is changing it and we get new samples and we test it before production. If we haven't been able to test it before production, we will hold the production back. Uh, And sometimes we see that, you know, it's worse than, uh, it's not according to our standards. And then we will cancel the product um and go to the back to the dealers and said sorry we are not able to deliver this product even if it has a, a sales value uh, and this is happening mostly in in on small kind of more niche products uh it's it's a few years since we had a big one but it has we have also had big cases there 
but we do not want uh, quality, you know, bad quality products on the market. Uh, textile is is difficult, so there you know, we can all we can never be hundred percent sure that everything on all products is hundred percent. But we have a good service um, system and service center all over the world that will make sure that the consumer never suffers if there's uh, you know a, a stitch that's not done accordingly, or it's the, if the, there's some production errors on. Uh, a fabric that doesn't meet the standards. But from a development point of view, uh, we will not launch a product which we're not uh, according to our quality standards. And we have not uh, put any of those products to the market since uh, 2008. You know, sometimes when you do lightweight products, there are, uh, you know, there's a compromise on durability and lightweight. Uh, so there are products that it was like we uh, like the standards say, but maybe it was uh, too weak. Uh, and I mean, uh, we have a great example of a fantastic lightweight base layer. Used the right way, it's fantastic, but it was very easy to destroy. And we took that eventually off the market because there was too many claims. You know, we measure every month, the whole management team look at the claim rate and we always have projects to improve and our claim rate is is uh, it's always been kind of less than one percent um and um and it's the, the last few years it's also going further down than that i'm curious if you'd be willing to share any maybe general lessons from that you know as recreational users we don't we're not privy to those things right like claim rates and and where claims come back you just mentioned you know anytime you're really emphasizing and making a priority a lightweight product the more that's going to be a priority for that product design durability is going to come into the question is that normally where you guys then would see your claims on for those people who are like, I'm trying to travel far and fast and I need to cut every gram possible? Is that where you're seeing many of the claims come in or are there interesting lessons you can share with us um, where, you know, where these things happen? Um, uh, there are some, uh, some areas that, um, you would see on claims. For example, zippers. Even if the zippers are within the standard that they were promised, uh, they are, um, not as strong as you want them to be. It's, it's not available to get them. You can, of course, make them very bulky and so on, but it yeah. destroys the product. So, if you use the zippers correctly, like the, man the, 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 the manufacturer of the zipper thought, it will last for a long time. But when you're out on the mountain, you kind of go a little quick in, there can uh -huh. be some ice. So zippers are uh, what we see from our statistics, you know, and I'm talking people use products. Our products could be, we get repairs in that's 30, 40, 50 years old. So something will eventually break. You know, if you use them long enough. And zippers are what we see uh, the most of. And, I mean, consumers are expected to be a warranty, and we treat it as a warranty, but it is sort of in line with uh, what we get from the supplier. And if there was, if it was possible to choose a more durable solution but not making it too stiff, 
you know, we will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of hiking pants, social pants, and you know, then you have stretch. So seams kind of, if you don't adjust every sewing machine the right way, that's a problem. So we've been working really hard on improving seams and eventually ending up with sort of an elastic tread. And of course, using a lot of time with our factories to, to adjust the machinery. So we've been able to uh, remove a lot, you know, take down the number of breaking seams a lot. Uh, and it's also a lot of constructions, you know, some constructions that they're, they're not bad, but you, after two or three or four or five years, you start to see there's, you know, here we have more claims than on the others. And this is, you know, all our, or let's say 90% of our product development is in-house. It's happening in a room uh, right behind me where we have a, we, where we do everything from designing, uh, you know, construction, uh, solving products, everything. So we have a very hands-on uh, feeling about, um, about you know, how to do, uh, do all of these small things. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm actually the fit model of large. So every Monday I test all the samples. I also go out uh, and taste, test it in nature. And I, t- I test all the men's products going to the market. So you get a good feeling of what is there. Of course, we have a big ambassadors team doing the same thing. But to, you know, if you want to make the highest quality outdoor products, it's really hard to uh, try to do some cheaper stuff. Because to get cheaper stuff, you have to do some compromises. So a lot of people, they say, oh, can't you do, can't you do something with the prices? But the mentality of making long-lasting, high-quality products, it's only one mindset. You cannot tell our people, here you can cheat, but here it's uh, only high-end. So our whole organization is geared towards making long-lasting products. Of course, uh, you have to bal- balance it with innovation where uh, innovation means doing something new. So, and you, you can test it for a year or maybe two, but you cannot test it for 10 years. So there is, there is some sort of dynamics there where we, yes, we, we tested it and it looks good, but maybe, uh, you know, after three years, it's, ah, I, mm, we can do this better also. So we don't have a zero claim rate. That's impossible because there are so many soft parts and so on. But we have a learning, a continuous learning on looking at the statistics. And every time we start making a new product or a new edition of a new product, we look at the history. You know, what can we learn from the history and all the data we have? We, do, we get 22,000 case, 22, cases a year. That's repairs and warranties and things that the consumer thinks is warranties. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, all of this... We handle, uh, actually within very few days, uh, back to the consumer. Average lead time is down to five days. Um, and all of the statistics gives us feedback for, uh, improved quality uh, going forward. So I hear you making a case for Norona that it's a, if you're buying a piece, it is an investment. And if something happens, certainly if there's a warranty issue, send it in be in touch you are trying to do a quick turnaround on product these are not disposable pieces that you are making this is not what we would call fast fashion or something yeah <laughs> no that got a big that got a big head shake yeah and my promise to the consumer we will make the consumer happy you know if you claim something to us we will make you happy that's a part of kind of 
the whole quality mindset and what you pay for in there is that if it doesn't meet your expectation, we will, you know, do everything we can add, uh, everything we can do to make the consumer happy, either by repairing or uh, replacing the product. I want to push you on this just a little further. You've, you've said multiple times, we are out there trying to make the best outdoor products on the market. You know, frankly, I think that's the kind of statement that a lot of brands make. It's easy to say. It's easy to say. And I think anybody who's been, you know, listening has heard you identify certain elements of what that actually means, right? But I'd love to hear you talk a bit more so that it isn't just talk. Internally, how you think about that or how you back up the statement or try to live up to the statement that like we are actually out there trying to make the best stuff out there. Um, I think, um, I mean, our history is a lot longer in Norway than internationally. Uh, but if you go on the second market, uh, there's a sort of eBay similar site in Norway. And they, uh, as far as I can see, they trade uh, like 50,000 Lurana products a year uh, in minimum. And if, if I were to take up this website now, um, you know, the Trollwagen jacket, which I mentioned, which was one of our, you know, all time uh, favorite uh, products. It's been very popular during this outdoor trend in the nineties. And so those products are, you know, plus minus 30 years old right now. Uh, I don't think anyone that has owned it has thrown it away. And currently they are massively uh, available and second hand markets from one third to maybe 150% of the original price. So uh, if you bought that jacket for 350 US dollar back in 95, you can have used it all the way until now, and you can get most of the time half of the price back. So it will cost you one coffee latte per year. Uh, and that would not have been possible if the quality was shitty. And there's a lot of products out there. Uh, so we, we see a number of old products, and I think maybe the last 25 years, this hasn't been as appreciated. Uh, we still had our quality uh, thing, but maybe the kind of the consumption trend has been, you know, I like to show that I have a new jacket. I feel this is changing that. There is more of a secondhand uh, approach, and then suddenly people start to really value that you have this long-term quality. But if you change that now, you know, you will not get it uh, back the last uh, 30 years. I mean, we've done this from the start. All the Norana products has been made that way. We've had some cases that we have uh, learned from, uh, but but the, the, the fundamental delivering high-quality uh, outdoor products has always been that way. Of course, I'm talking as a representative to the brand. So, and, and probably a lot of other auto brands would say the same, but I think the amount of old products still in use is, is the only thing kind of like uh, you can, that can verify it. And, um, if you walk around the Norwegian mountains, I don't see any other brand that you see so much old products out there. And I'm proud of that. So I, I often say a new Norana product is great. An old one is even greater. That's a good answer. I, I like that. Uh, how long are pieces from a brand still out there in the field 
And in fact, having people actively looking to purchase used products, right? It's a, it's actually a nice measure. I hadn't, hadn't thought too much about that one. I want to talk a bit about something that's near and dear to our hearts here at Blister these days. We've uh, started this Blister Labs program. And um, so we are thinking a lot with Blister Labs about current tests and current standards. And we're really trying to go in and interrogate some of these standards. Where did they come from? Why were they created? Uh, were the reasons they were originally created, are those now still relevant or are they outmoded, outdated? And I'd love to hear a bit how you all think about standards and tests and sometimes what I think is an incredibly important thing to go make sure that your products adhere to current standard tests. But then how do you handle the idea that, well, maybe we can improve on these things? What is the brand's uh, approach to standards and tests? Um, I, I think the, the good thing with standards and tests is that if you kind of know the scale and you get sort of a tear strength, because we have a lot of experience, we know that a uh, tear strength of 10K, if that's good or bad. Uh, so uh, when, we, uh, when we kind of do uh, look at new materials, we... Uh, check them in the lab and see how they're doing to see if they're within the scope. And then we make test products and we go out in nature and test it. You cannot only do lab tests. You have to go out in nature. And we also do, uh, we have like this Dura washer, which washes product. Uh, you know, one, one wash is like 150 hours use. So this is a very effective tool to see uh, durability. So both things test field testing and lab testing, they are very important. And I think that the standards and the lab test, when you have found the fabric that you like, yes, this is working. It's important to know the standards on it. So if the vendor sends you something which is not matching the standard, you know there's something wrong. So you said, well, you promised that it had a tear strength of 10. This has a 10 tear strength of 7. There must be something wrong. So... But field test is really where you know if the product is uh, going to work or not. So, uh, but the lab test is kind of giving you, uh, okay, this is what we measure on when we when we get all the materials in and so on. Uh, but we have, of course, we have modified a lot of lab tests. You know, you have the abrasion test, and you know that takes forever. And and like, uh, yeah, I mean, you will not wear out Gore-Tex products with the kind of abrasion of cotton. So we, of course, introduced Velcro and sandpaper, and, and uh, they are not ISO certified, but they give you an answer. So maybe you have a fabric you know you, it's really well, and you can uh, take a new one and, and you use sandpaper, and you see, okay, compared to this one, this one looks pretty good, uh, uh, you know. And you, you have to have the combination because uh, a fabric with a high tear strength can have low snagging. So, so you know, you cr cross... Um, kind of do them and uh, I know we're going to talk a little about PFAS later on and, and PFAS is also used to uh, inc improve durability so uh, I mean we have worked on since 2015 to remove PFAS from our products and what we saw uh, in some important products in 2017 we took away the, the fluorocarbon DWR and uh, 
they didn't have enough experience what that happened. So when those products came to the market, they started peeling. So, I mean, yes, bad product come to the market, but this was sort of, we didn't have that experience. So eventually we learned that. And every time we now had taken out the PFAS from the DWR, you have to do the testing and make sure it's strong enough. You wouldn't see this in the lab probably, but uh, kind of when you're out testing it in the field, you would see this difference. And here we have the case with the vendor. They say it has exactly the same uh, lab test, we say, but it doesn't perform the same. And there we didn't have a test to do it. But eventually we kind of, okay, well, have you done something different? Yeah, we have taken out uh, uh, the fluorocarbon DWR. That shouldn't do anything to the fabric, but it did. And then we had to do some adjustments to the fabric. Well, this is certainly a big topic in the United States um, and a timely one given, I mean, we actually just talked about this on our last Gear 30 podcast episode. Um, Alex from Outdoor Research was talking about new laws coming up in the state of California where new products that have PFAS uh, in them, uh, it's illegal. Uh, so just to be clear on this front, you were saying that Norona started to remove PFAS when? Uh, we made our first responsibility roadmap launched in 2015. Then we went to all our uh, vendors and we said, by 2020, our goal is to uh, have moved uh, PFAS or uh, PFC out of all uh, uh, our products. Um, we have uh, not been able to do that. We've been working really closely with Gore and pushing them really hard to do it. Um, but uh, it is hard to, to get this going, probably because there are not too many alternatives. We have, uh, at the moment, we have um, removed or from, from fall into 24, uh, we have kind of been able to remove uh, the, the PFAS uh, from the DWR and, and everything except the Gore-Tex Pro, which will happen next year. Um, but during this phase, so it was 2017, 18, we got to remove a lot of uh, fluorocarbon from from the DWR, and you see that, uh, you know, fabrics uh, more wet out, uh, it's easier to get stains. Uh, so, so there are, uh, um, you know, it adds something else to the product, or they get uh, less performing on stains and, uh, and, uh, and these kind of things. Of course, we totally support uh, what's happening to PFAS, and we have, we have wanted to do this for a long time. But, but I understand why uh, a lot of kind of um, suppliers down the value chain, which is not exposed to the consumer critics of this, is kind of hasn't been investing in alternative technology because they are uh, been performing less. Yeah, and I, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating time. And I think that manufacturers have a big job ahead of them, as do those of us on the product review side of things. Uh, we need to really educate people, right? Uh, that's that's going to have to be an enormous responsibility, I think, for all of us, because maybe there's not 100% agreement on this, but there's probably large agreement, as you've just said. There are good reasons to move away from certain compounds, right? 
And everybody likes to talk about sustainability and all of us in the outdoor space like to talk about what's good for the environment. This is one of those times where let's put our money where our mouth is. And as people who are passionate about the outdoors, I think most of us, the vast, vast majority of us can live with the notion that we might need to alter expectations a little bit for our products. And it's like, oh, if my jacket now is showing a bit of a stain that maybe it wouldn't have on a product made with, you know, PFAS. Well, you know what? We're probably going to be fine at the end of the day. And um, but I do think that this is something that we're talking about internally, that we are not doing our part in the ecosystem if we aren't making that clear or if we're putting out reviews and we're like, ah, the old jacket was better. What's going on here? It's like we all need to be on board with this. And um, it's it's interesting because I I can't really think of a similar analog, say, in the last 10 to 15 years where we might be stepping back certain performance elements for the sake of improving other performance elements, namely sustainability. I think, to be honest, uh, the, the, the sort of um, DWR performance has been going down for many years. So uh, so it, now it, it's so bad to what it was 20 years ago. So I don't think you will kind of feel the difference on the last change here. But anyway, waterproof Vortex jacket will still be waterproof. But you will see the the stains and you will see the wetting out on the fabric. And, and maybe we just have to get used to doing uh, kind of... Uh, extra sp- uh, spray, imp- uh, you know, spray, putting on spray to uh, put on new DWR a little more often, and that we maybe have to wash the garment a little more often. And it's still kind of the premium, uh, I mean, Gore-Tex is still the premium membrane out there to keep you dry and uh, comfortable uh, in shitty weather. Well, now with quite an interesting sort of macro conversation about all of these things. I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about a few specific pieces uh, in the current lineup or maybe things that are coming out that you're particularly excited about and think that our audience ought to know about. Uh, First of all, I have to say, you know, I do all the activities that we make products for. uh, And I also test all the products Coming in, I, I just got a box here with uh, samples for fall winter 24. So I will already start um, this weekend to start testing them. Uh, so so the, the good thing with that is, of course, you are very on top of every product. The sad thing is that I don't get to use my favorites because yes. I have to test, yes. uh, test the new products all the time. Uh, so that's a little sad sometimes. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I interrupt just a second? People always are like, oh, man, so jealous of your job. You get to test all this new gear all the time. And, and maybe the jaded part of me, I, I often will reply, like, I actually know what my favorite products are or my favorite skis are. I would love to get to spend more time on those things. No one feels sorry for me ever. Not at any point. No one ever and i i kind of get it but i but i i sympathize with you yes <laughs> now so uh my favorite products i think we then have to go into each activity um and i mean 
even if the first Lofoten products, the, the Gore-Tex Pro jacket and pants were, were made many years ago, I have so much feelings attached to these products. And uh. I mean, I haven't tested it so much lately, but this winter I went to Japan and got to use them a lot again because then mm. it was sort of a lot of snow, a lot of snowing, mm. and the temperature was right. And I mean, I, I was like, when I used those products, I said, I don't find anything to improve. And uh, so I really like those. Mm. Um, but I, one product which is undersold in general, I mean, I mean, there's probably other brands that have, of course, not as good, but similar technology. And it's this breathable insulation, mm -hmm. especially when you kind of are active. It's mm -hmm. so damn good. Mm -hmm. And we have the Linion Alpha 100 jacket, which has a very open uh, windshell on top, and it has the PolarTech Alpha insulation on the inside. And the Alpha insulation is open on the inside. It looks like a fleece. Yeah. And when you go ski touring with this one and it's cold, the moisture just moves straight through. So this is, uh, you know, we're not selling. Uh, I think we had such a big potential to sell this one if people knew what it was. But everyone that buys it are so happy with it. Mm. So this is one really cool product. Um, Say the name again for people listening. Yeah, it's uh, it's inside our Lingen collection. Yeah. Lingen is our ski touring collection. And it's called Lingen Alpha 100 Jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, I mean, that's a really, really cool product. Um, I mean, I also like uh, mountain biking uh, a lot. And um, of course, we have some really cool new uh, ski button and Fjord shorts coming out uh, next spring. But the classic uh, Fjord Flex One shorts, uh, it's a little longer cut. This is also a product that I have a lot of emotions to. And I, like really well and and uh most time in norway it's it's a lot colder than than uh, in uh most part of us so uh so i mean it's it's a lot it's very good good for uh and not the warmest days but uh uh you know the little and not a super hot days but that's one of my favorite uh products um and a, a little on the side you know this is also a lot of people don't know, but we do wetsuits for Arctic surf. I, mm. I don't surf, but I windsurf. I also think okay. it's really cool to windsurf, uh, you know, in really cold weather with uh, our own wetsuits. Um, so that's three really cool products. And then mm. I have to think, uh, um, now we have, um, I mean, especially for this time, I, I do uh, a lot of kind of grouse hunting and, and forest bird hunting with my dog, which is more to be out in nature at this time. Um, but uh, we have uh, a new uh, collection coming in in February called the Femen uh, collection. And there's a Femen heavy duty pants, which is a mix of canvas, cotton and uh, soft shell. And I mean, when I use that out now, it's, I really, really like it. It's durable, it's weather protective, but still breathing quite well. And it looks very, very cool. What do you think would be the best, you know, top one or two applications for that pant then? I'm imagining, I mean, hunting, okay, but sort of bushwhacking, high grass, tree branches, mm -hmm. any kind of hiking or backpacking where you might be, or hunting yeah, where you might be in those. Of, it's a perfect, but it, it's, um, 
it's it's also on the warmer side. So I would say fall, winter, spring, uh, and super durable. And it will, um, since it's cotton, it, it has uh, some partly waterproof areas, but it's not a rain pant, but it's still a uh, little weather prote- protective. Um, and it, it kind of, it, you know, now it's fall, so you get this special feeling, and uh, that pant is really uh, good. I mean, another cool co- collection is uh, our new uh, launched in February this year, the Senya collection, and uh, trail running. It's made for trail running, and this is a new area for us. And of course, when you do trail running, you want things very simple. Um, and I think, you know, what we are good at is adding on features and differentiating uh, from our uh, competitors, not just kind of selecting a fabric and, and uh, you know, that can everyone do, but it's kind of creating the unique design. And the, the Senna Flex 1 uh, trail running shorts, it looks so clean, it's so lightweight, but it still has a lot of cool features that you don't see right away, but it's there. So this is uh I'm very happy with this shorts also and the feedback on it is is super cool. Uh and uh another one is uh from mountain biking, which uh, we, we made a pro shell mountain biking jacket, and this was based on feedback from our loyalty members. We asked them every now and then what to to make, and the feedback was you guys make so cool uh ski jacket. Can you make a bike jacket with the same attitude? It's of course uh, way more expensive than anything on the market, um, but I'm proud of kind of being able to make something so different. And the feedback that we see on our webpage from this one is, it's the most expensive uh, bike product, clothing product I ever bought, but it still surpasses the expectation. Is some of the feedback we got in there. I mean, then uh, it makes me a little proud. Wait, and so when does that product roll out? It came uh, to market February 23, so it's already on the market. It's already, okay. The Fiero Gore-Tex Pro jacket. Okay. What makes that the most expensive jacket? What, like, talk about, like, what, no, what about I mean, it? Yeah, I think what we, what the feedback we got from our consumers, and it's been in front of us all the time. Uh, since bike clothing have a limit today, we, even us, haven't kind of gone twice that limit. But most of the time, you try to make a waterproof bike jacket uh, hit the existing price level. I think most brands do that. And when our consumer says, can you take your ski jacket approach and put that to a mountain bike jacket? So what do you do then? That's it. What features do you need? Okay, what fabric? If you're going to make the most weather protective and durable uh, jacket, what kind of fabric do you use? Then you go to Gore-Tex Pro. Um, we made kind of integrated hand gaiters that are waterproof in front of it. We have a hood that's constructed for good view, but storm protection. We have all the right venting, uh, the right cut, the right pockets. And, and then, you know, it gets more expensive. You know, the more you add in, the more expensive it is. But we still felt that, you know, let's try. You know, the, the feedback uh, from quite a few customers were there. And... Um, you know, it's only been uh, six uh, months in the market, but uh, feedback seems really good. Of course, it's a niche product, but we like to make niche products. That's when they're most successful, when they go into the niches and and suddenly we discover an area that the consumer always wanted, but no one made products for. 
I think one of the things I've enjoyed the most about this conversation is I think the most animated you yourself got was when I asked about some of your favorite pieces, you lit up talking about the sort of first generation Lofoten jacket and going to Japan, <laughs> which mm-hmm. if anybody who's ever been to Japan, you know why you've lit up. Uh, but then talking about some of these niche products. And I, I always appreciate a lot of passion in this area. If we in the, we're, we're not, you know, we're not accountants. We're not like accounting matters, but it's not the stuff that gets those of us in the outdoor industry up in the morning and gets us passionate. And I, I always appreciate when someone is at the helm of a company and you see that passion and you see a clear mission, whether it's talking about products that might be approaching 20 years old or talking about some cutting edge products that are very expensive and you're like, this isn't for everyone. But I still want to talk about it, and we are excited about it. Um, I those are things that I appreciate, and I also think you've done a fantastic job today, just sharing this nearly one hundred year old history of the company, and telling us and showing us where the brand has been, and some things that we can expect the brand to head in the future. Nice job, well done. Thank you, thank you. I, I just want to tab onto your. Uh, to your uh, thoughts about products here. Uh, f- first of all, I mean, since I was very little, I knew what makes me uh, wake up and go to work in the morning. I like creating stuff. I like building everything. You know, that's what motivates me. Building products, marketing campaigns, computer systems, stores, whatever. But I would like to uh, address um, a situation back in, in 2009. Uh, I was testing out the new uh, soft shell mountain bike pants, core mountain biking pants. And you know, mountain biking was a lot smaller at this time. Uh, so I was, I remember it still today. I was reflecting, uh, you know, we ha- there was a lot of things to do as a CEO in Orana, and I was using my time to try this, uh, still being a fit model, trying this product. As, is, am I using my time right now when I, when I spend time on uh, with the product development team testing this product, which is so niche, and the learning from it, I thought uh, even if I liked the product a lot, it was so niche. But this product ended up being our most profitable from sales wise. So, uh, and I think in outdoor industry in general, sometimes we limit ourselves with uh, kind of the price boundaries which is out there or the style which is out there. And therefore, I mean, I like my competitors that do something unique to themselves, you know, not following others, but try to go in their own direction. Of course, we try that too. I think that's so valuable or else it gets so boring. Uh, And the learning here is you never know which product can kind of be your next really good one. Uh, And of course, we didn't compromise anything when we made this product, but still kind of it hit something. If we made a hiking products out of it it would never done the same but we made it mountain biking we could shape we could tell the consumer what mountain biking should look like it was so early on but it showed that this product it was used for ski touring hiking all kinds of things it was very flexible and had a distinct cool look here's to the people trying to push some boundaries and keep keep thinking creatively and hard about some of these things and 
and then getting to go outside in some beautiful places to enjoy all of that as well. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good projects, I think, at the end of the day. Well, listen, I appreciate the conversation. I also appreciate the fact that uh, it is evening where you are and uh, you are probably interested hopefully in going home maybe you just have to get back to more work but uh what what's the agenda for the evening no i actually go i still got quite a bit of more work that has to be done i go <laughs> home and do it from home but okay. uh, for sure we'll uh, go out uh, on saturday and do new outdoor activities and uh, i mean if this podcast hadn't come up today i would probably be out in the nature but uh <laughs> It was cool to uh, hook up to this one. Mm. So uh, I think I was really happy to be a part of it. Oh, well, thank you very much. Sorry for, for ruining that outdoor time. I, I, I try to protect my own as well. So uh, I, I owe you one for that. Um, but uh, I appreciate the conversation and um, we'd love to do it again sometime and, and check back in on the latest stuff you all are thinking about and coming up with. So maybe down the line. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot for having me on. It was uh, really uh, nice and uh, nice to meet you and uh, cool to be part of it. All right. Well, listen, have a good evening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Well, it is now time for our crashes and close calls segment. And I've got a little bit of a different story for you this week, but I really like this story. And so I'm going to share it with you. This past Tuesday, I was in the Boise, Idaho airport. Uh, I had been asked to talk at an outdoor media summit conference. Uh, met some really great people there, by the way. That was a good time. And I was about to board a flight and I hear someone sort of shout across the airport from about 30 feet away. Somebody just says, Hey, Jonathan. And I look up and I'm like, Yeah. And this person who I've never met in my life says, I just signed up for Blister Plus. So I looked at the person next to me who I was talking with and then looked back at this new Blister Plus member. And I just said, well, that's cool. And he had to board the plane. And so he, that was kind of it. A few minutes later, I get on the plane and turns out my seat was literally exactly in front of his. I think I was 28F. So he was 29F. And so we got to have a conversation and um, great guy. Shout out to Billy. We're going to call him Billy because I didn't ask if I could share this story or anything. So um, we're going with Billy, but shout out to Billy. We had a great time talking. He also mentioned that he was currently reading the James Nestor book Breath, which you've heard me talk about on our Blister podcast. And um, he said that he's a big Blister fan, that he just got Blister Plus coverage, I think, like a couple days prior to seeing me in the Boise airport. He also like rolled up his sleeve and showed me a pretty nice case of, uh, of road rash and said that he was mountain biking around Boise and was kind of done with the gnarly part of the ride, but was just kind of coming through the easy stuff. But it was as is often the case, dry and loose. And he lost his front wheel, went down, fortunately wasn't badly injured, but just got a pretty good case of road rash or gravel rash. And that prompted him to get Blister Plus. I told him that I had a very similar experience 
except I ended up breaking four ribs and blowing up my shoulder, which kind of led me on this path to the creation of Blister Plus. Uh, but anyway, that was sort of a chance encounter and pretty fun to get a call out in the airport by somebody who just had become a Blister Plus member. So, Billy, great to meet you. That was fun. He says he's coming to the summit. And um, so that'll be another chance to connect. But um, it's nice to hear more of these stories of people being smart and getting themselves covered. I guess we're not going to give Billy all the IQ points because, you know, he only signed up after he wrecked and he got lucky and he didn't get hurt badly on that. But you, dear listener, I want you to be even smarter than Billy and sign up for Blister Plus before you get hurt and before you start incurring expensive emergency room bills or surgery bills and the rest. So we will include a link to our Blister Plus membership in the show notes of this episode. Again, maybe the most important thing you can do today is to go read over carefully what is included in that coverage and ask yourself if and when something goes down and you have an accident mountain biking or skiing or fishing or climbing or camping etc cetera, etc cetera, how much would you have to pay right how much would you have to pay for that injury and then it just becomes a straight math problem and we are very proud of this blister plus service and we just want our community to get covered, all of you. So check it out and get yourself signed up before you get hurt. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks again to Jorgen for the conversation. And again, apologies for my poor American pronunciation. I want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you, as always, for listening and for your support. Now, I hope you all have a great weekend. And if you are still listening to this at this point, you're going to get the heads up that our Blister podcast is not going to air this Monday. Blame Cody Townsend for this. He claims he's off in some exotic location. I don't know. Definitely not doing something as important as recording a reviewing the news episode with me but um cody and i are going to record this coming tuesday and then do a very quick turnaround and get our next blister podcast episode which will be a reviewing the news episode that's going to go up either sometime tuesday afternoon or worst case it'll go up wednesday morning so that's your heads up to those of you who are still listening to the very bitter end here you all are the real winners and you all are the best. All right, everybody. Talk to you soon. <laughs>